Enterprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days Just representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. I'm so excited. I'm actually recording right now, talking into the couch to reduce vibration before the Eugene Marathon. That's right. In about 10 hours from now, we'll be starting off the Eugene Marathon. I am so excited. It's been a wonderful weekend, and I'm just so, so pumped. But this isn't about me. We're talking about Heather Knight Peck today. There's someone with four age group wins at Boston Marathon and who just last week, set the course record for women age groups 60 to 64. What an amazing accomplishment. She ran in 3.03, and she's just an incredible person. This is the third time she's been on this show, and I just, every time I get a chance to talk to Heather, it's a blessing because she is just so driven, but also provides so much insight and candor into her process that's something that we can all learn from. And when you hear stats like fourth age group win at Boston, you must think, all right, well, this woman's obviously like has got it going on, and, and this is someone who's had a lot of success for a long period of time. And while that's certainly true, over the last three years, she has battled injury. And even as, you know, just two, even three months ago, it wasn't clear that she would even be running Boston this year, never mind breaking Boston Marathon course records. And that journey is exactly what we talk about in this episode. So let's get into it with Heather Knight Peck. All right, Heather Peck is back on the show. Heather, congratulations on an incredible Boston Marathon performance. Oh my God, Matt, thank you so much. What a day. What a day indeed. You know, you've been on the show a couple of times now and I recommend everyone going back to listen to those episodes. And in the intro, I did highlight those before. One of them was a Coach's Corner episode and one of them we talk about you in more of our feature format like we have for so many athletes. So we're not going to do the full tell me your history type episode today because, well, frankly, we've already done that. But we're going to talk about the last couple of years because you've had an interesting couple of years culminating. I should say culminating because there's still plenty more to do. But you ran 303.47 at Boston last weekend, which obviously everyone knows is an incredibly fast time. But not only that, you set, let me get this right, the 60 to 64 women's age group course record at Boston. Did you ever think that you were going to be holding a Boston Marathon record, Heather? Five years ago, no. In the last couple of years, yes. When was the genesis of like, hey, I can do this? And when did that start to even come up in your mind and uh, even knowing what the record was, I guess? Um, the record was held by Joan Benoit Samuelson um, with a 304. Who's that? <laughs> Only the most famous woman runner, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, all hail the queen. Um, so she ran 304 on the course. Um, and I believe she was 61 when she did that, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, and I ran 300 at Indy in the fall of 19, before COVID. Um, so I felt probably in the last couple of years, pretty confident that if I could stay healthy, that I could, that I could own that record at Boston. That's great. But let's talk about that because that's a big if for a lot of runners, right? The whole, if I can stay healthy after Indy in 2019, how was your health? 
My health was good. Um, I spent a year from, from, from November of 2019 to November of 2020, I PR'd every single distance that I ran from the mile to the 5K, 10K, half, and um, marathon. Um, wow. So who had a better year than you? Maybe Kira D'Amato? That was the only Kira, one? Kira D'Amato definitely had a better year than me. But um, but I felt pretty confident um, during that time that my best was definitely in front of me and that you know, sort of age was just a number and I was feeling really good. Um, until the fall of 2020, where I started to have certainly some signs that I, I won't say I ignored, we managed. Um, and then I ran a half in November of 2020, trying to go after the American and, and world record, um, fell short, um, but had a, a, an over two minute PR myself at the half. Um, during the fall, during that fall, I ran my fastest 5K and 10K. I ran a 38, 56, 58, something like that, sub 39. Um, and I was having some trouble with my foot. I definitely was sort of managing my foot a little bit. Um, it, it would bother me the first mile or two in a run, and then it would sort of go away. You know, I was, I, you know, I attribute that it was sort of stretching and working its way through and, um, sometimes I felt it, sometimes I didn't. I usually never felt it after two miles. I actually never felt it at all in that half. Um, and then in December, I had a little problem with my hamstring, which had been an injury from 2018. I got scared. I shut myself down over the holidays, but it wasn't the foot. It was my hamstring. Um, came back to resumed running, you know, around New Year's. Um, went through January, February was training for Boston. And I was on an easy run in early February, right? Like the same week as my birthday. And we were in a group, four or five of us, and we were going along three, four miles, and I still felt my foot. And I thought that that was really odd just because it never, I never felt it after two miles. And that started in September. Um, if mile five, it started to escalate. The group with me noticed that I stopped talking and I, chat a lot on the runs and so forth. And they noticed that I stopped talking, but I didn't really adjust pace or gait. Um, and the pain was escalating to the point where I stopped running, which is very rare for me to do. And I pulled over on the side of the road. Once I stopped, I, I couldn't walk. Oh man, that must've been scary. I crawled. I literally crawled, um, to my car, got to my car, got to my house, got crutches and went directly to my PT. Um, Serious, I couldn't walk. Was pretty sure I had torn something, done something, but I didn't feel a pop or a tear. I just felt pain escalate, and then when I stopped, couldn't couldn't put any weight on my left foot. So, um, we I went I went to the head doctor at HSS. Um, had sort of a nightmare there actually. Um, was put in a boot and crutches. Um, shock treatment. Um, spent. Eight weeks um, in a boot, crutches, shock treatment, nothing. Started a run walk, um, was telling everybody, um, particularly my coach, James, that I did not feel right, that this was not, I was not okay. Um, and I was sort of hobbling along. Um, and that was May. Um, 
So I started to do a lot of research um, and came in touch with a doctor in St. Louis through a mutual teammate of mine, Crystal Harris. And um, I flew out to St. Louis and had my foot injected with a very high concentrated level of PRP simultaneously stem cell, bone marrow, and fat, which acts as the plaster. Um, there are actually four or five guys in Northern America that do this um, and are all trained by a guy out of Montana. It's done in Europe quite a bit um, and had enormous success from that treatment. Um, my foot was, was fine. After three weeks, I was, you know, um, I resumed biking and swimming and whatever. We were going to wait to start running and a run walk, but I w was having no pain in my foot during that time. I um, started to run walk um, in August. Wow. So that was an ex exceptionally long time from running. F from February. Yeah. Yeah. So I lost four months just in the first four months, that was a waste of time, misdiagnosed, mistreated. And I could get into the detail of that, but I was put on an anti-inflammatory that caused my liver enzymes to go. It was just, a, it was a mess, Matt. Um, anyway, um, Matt Bays in St. Louis, part of the Blue Tail Medical Group, um, saved me, fixed me. Um, then I spent months with what I call reactive muscle failure. Um, Largely, largely because, or at least my team feels because I spent so much time in a boot and crutches. So my quad and my IT band got stuck. Um, oh my God. So like this whole time you were recovering from this injury and like the rest of your body should have been good to go because of all the, all the rest you'd had and all this stuff. And instead it was actually getting worse. It was getting worse. It was getting worse. My calf, my, my, uh, my, um, my medial um, tibialis, um, everything was reactive. It wasn't injury and my foot was fine, but I was a mess. My chain was a mess. It, it, I couldn't turn over. I couldn't run a 10, 15 pace. I couldn't get my legs to move. If I ran fast, when you think about running economy, I was okay for short intervals. So we started to do some of that and play with that. And I was doing a lot of, you know, very fast 200s and um, 400s and 600s. And I would be okay for that. But the minute I would get to the recovery or I would try to just go for an easy, lengthy run, I, I just couldn't. I just couldn't get the legs to, um, to, to move. I described it as clunky, as, as though my chain was off completely um, and spend a lot of time very, very sad. I bet. Cause here this whole time, you know, you're, and you've been on coach's corner here and we've talked about your coaching with McCurdy train. You, you, you interact with a lot of runners, right? You're one of those people who don't just coach a, a few runners here and there. You're coaching a lot of people. You're really interactive with a lot of folks. And here you are spending a lot of time trying to figure out like, what's your own running journey going to be at this, you know, during that year. What was that like for you being so ingrained in other people's running and just seeing yours just like not quite where it should be and also not having the easiest answers as you're navigating it? Um, I would say honestly that injury is isolating um, and it's 
physically and emotionally very difficult and painful. Um, I was able to lean into my athletes. Um, and, um, I'm, I'm driven to, I want to find my best and I want to be the best. Um, and I just, I, I diverted that to coaching and cheering. Um, and it inspired me. It gave me strength. It gave me hope. It distracted me. Um, and, um, and it filled me up in a way I can't really put into words, but I was out on my bike. I was out at races. Um, I was, I was working harder. Um, I missed desperately being an athlete, but I, I, I knew I was changing people's lives in my coaching and sharing. Well, that's great. That was great that you still had that connection. Cause I can imagine, you know, maybe different points of your life or having other people go through something similar where it's like, they don't even want to engage in that same way because they're so frustrated with their own running that it like, it keeps shining a light on what they're not able to do. So it's great that you're still able to have those experiences and still have that impact on people, even when you know, you aren't having the kind of running impact that you wanted to have. Yeah. It was, I mean, there were days where I was on the side of the road crying and I'm not a crier. Um, it, it was hard. I won't say that I didn't, you know, wallow, but I didn't stay there. Um, I pulled, I pulled myself out and I, I was able to do that because I have a group of people that are extraordinary and, and, um, and that needed me and I needed them and it, it was wonderful. So how did you get the clunkiness out? Like, what, what, what was? How do you solve that problem? Um, well, I had to get my quad and IT band, you know, um, um, gliding again, um, and and they weren't. Um, I had to work through um, some psoas and rectus and hip flexor, and as I said, medial tibialis, and it just everything was moving up and around the chain. Um, largely because it just hadn't done anything for so long. I think it's dangerous to, to, to not, um, to not move. And I think it's particularly dangerous as you get older, um, to not move. So, um, we just, I, I had a team of people working with me, um, three, four days a week. It was, it was a real team effort. Um, ART, um, prehab, physical therapy, strength training, mobility, um, you know, and so forth, dry needling. Um, there was a lot of stuff going on every day. So the physical therapy and the strength and that sort of thing, was those elements that you already had incorporated in your plan and maybe you were just doing more or I know, cause for some people like the ART side, the dry, dry needling side, um, that can get tricky for some folks just from an availability perspective, but obviously with the, the strength and the prehab and the rehab and stuff like that, there are elements that um, that a lot of people can incorporate in their own either training or in terms of uh, their rehabilitation work. So how did that shift during that time or did it not? It it did shift. I, I have always done that. Um, I've always taken a lot of care. Uh, I mean, since I retired and started running seriously, I've taken a lot of care with um, dynamics and mobility and, you know, strength training and so forth. It's always been a part. And I believe wholeheartedly that, that everybody should practice prehab once you are, um, 
released from physical therapy, that it's a good idea once a month or once every six weeks to check in and to see where imbalances and, you know, compensation and things are going on as part of movement patterns. I think that that's really important. And I've always done that. And I have a great partner in, in Kevin at, at Performance Optimal Health here who, who manages that for me. But I got way more serious about an incorporated pre-activation before I ran. I'd never done that before. Now I don't run without it. Um, I added, you know, mobility and some, you know, at-home Pilates work um, into my schedule, which I had not done on a daily. You know, I had done some things here and there sporadically. Um, the strength maintained, I've always done that two to three days a week and, and, and that maintained, I shifted and started working with, um, Keith out at high, higher ground. Um, and, um, and then do some of the strength training also with performance, but, um, dry needling, um, yes, it's not available to everybody. Um, I think it's pretty much a critical, at least for me to, to be able to, to run and move the way that I need to. Um, I think cryotherapy is also a really good treatment, but everybody responds differently to different things. Um, you know, the ART work, depending on who you're working with, I mean, I, I am with who I believe to be the best. There's sort of three guys in the country. One of them happens to be in New York city. Um, Peter Dugan at fuel, um, and spine, but it's, it's painful. I mean, he's a well-known guy. His name has come up on several occasions uh, on the podcast. And it's like, I've never asked about Peter Dugan, but it's funny. His name comes up a surprising amount. Okay. He's the bomb. Um, as are Does all he the- work with NYRR too when, yes. when they're in town? Yeah. 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 Okay. As are all these people I'm listing. They, these guys are best in class. I, I mean, the, the, the team that I have, I mean, my PT is, you know, with the Ranger. I mean, they're, they're the best of the best. Um, and he, um, to give you an idea, and he might not like this, but um, on my calendar, my Tuesday appointment with him says Peter dash waterboarding. <laughs> oh, God. The fact that you even have it on your calendar says it all. It's not even like, hey, I'll say this to my friends on occasion. It's just, no, that's just what it says on my calendar. No, that's just what it says. Cause that's, and, and of course, my mother was really very cute because one day I was describing and she saw all the bruises and she said, and you do this so that you can run? <laughs> you 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 pay this man to give you bruises? <laughs> and I said, yes, mom, I do. Um, so so there was a lot, there was a lot going on. And um we um we 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 got into January and February and it just it 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 was getting somewhat better, but not really. So that's even so. So now we're at a year mark, right? Because it yeah. started in February. So yeah. now you're in January. You're now at a year. It's kind of getting better. Did you at at any point here beyond just like a fleeting second, did you start to get fatalistic about um, either your goals or what 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 performance level you're going to be able to reach once this is concluded? Um, I shifted. Um, at 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 the time at the end of January. And February, um, Peter actually said to me, and I quote him, you don't want to tarnish your Boston. Um, Kevin and James stayed quiet. Um, I started to, I kind of mentally took Boston off the table and was shifting to the fall. Um, I was running, but I was 
Matt, I, I could get 14 to 16 miles in a workout with marathon specific, you know, significant marathon specific work in it. But the minute I got to 15 or 16 miles, the pain at that point in my hip flexor was escalating to the degree that when I stopped, I couldn't walk. I couldn't lift, I couldn't lift the, the leg higher than the, you know, two inches off the ground higher than maybe my opposite ankle. Oh my God. Yeah. So, and that was in February. So I just sort of shifted. Um, and I kept saying, I don't, I don't have to, um, I don't have to make a decision on Boston. I can make the decision the morning of, um, but mentally I shifted sort of away, um, and, and thought, well, we'll, we'll just keep working. I know that the return to injury, I mean, the return from injury can be a year. It, it you know, it, it can be that from a significant injury. Um, so, you know, that's sort of what happened to me in 18. So I was realistic. Um, I was disappointed that we were at the year mark and I still wasn't where I wanted to be. Um, but um, we, again, James and I uh, pivoted in my training. Um, and, um, we shifted gears. Um, he, he dropped my V dot like a stone. Um, we had a big fight. Um, we should tell people who aren't, people who who aren't on the V dot system. Basically it's a training app, kind of like training peaks. And there's, there's a bunch of other ones, but basically your V dot score is kind of like the algorithm level that, that aligns with your fitness level. And so someone puts in like a workout, depending on what your VDOT score, then we'll have certain certain paces that coaches can put in and, and play with. But basically, it's a fitness level that someone plugs into the algorithm. So if someone says, hey, my VDOT changed either up or down, it's a reflection on fitness and performance. So when you say it dropped like a stone, you know, that's one of those tough ones, right? And you're a coach who uses VDOT. It's like you always you always have to be careful when you move someone's VDOT down. Like you almost have to have like a conversation ahead of time because it can be a, a shot to the gut. That was very well put. He did not have a conversation beforehand. Thereby we had we had to go to we had to go to therapy. Um <laughs> anyway, um long story short, I just I wasn't so we shifted gears. Um I just started running for time. If I could progress in the run, we would progress. Um, during this time in February, I also started to take Mondays off entirely from everything. I didn't get on a bike. I didn't. I just took them off. I've never done that. Um, this is a girl who, you know, three years ago was running a hundred mile weeks. Um, so that was a, a, a pretty significant change. Um, in addition to everything else that I was doing. And, um, we got, we got into March and it really was, it was actually the third week in March. I ran a, a, a longish run. I went out for two hours and 20 minutes and I was able to progress after 10 miles, run a negative split and, and walk when I was done. And I was pretty happy with that. Um, it was sort of a meh for me, you know, the average seven, 18, something like that. But, I recognized that that was, I felt strong, even if I didn't, if I, even if I realized that I really wasn't that fast or I wasn't where I thought I should be, um, I felt strong. I felt good. 
Um, I was walking. Um, I went back out. Some of my athletes were out on the on this the same run and course. I I went back out to cheer them in. Um, and I just felt good. And I hadn't had that in a, in a, in a, in now over a year. That is awesome. What an amazing feeling that must have felt like. And during this time, as you're kind of working your way back into the shape that you want to be, not even that, just like just to have that flow and that feeling on the run where you can just you know, put your mind on autopilot and not worry about your stride, which I'm sure must have been a struggle for you because it's been something you've been worried about and trying to iron out for so long. How did you and your team ensure that you weren't going to have overcompensation injuries? Because the whole time you're dealing with this, this one side, this one leg, whereas you're still working, you're still working hard and, and, and still running and being fit. How did you make sure that the other leg didn't have overcompensation issues stemming from what was happening on the other side? Um, I, I think largely we, we just, we managed that through mobility and strength. And we just made sure that we were, we were balancing the work. Um, at this point, I felt like my stride was okay. Um, I didn't feel like it was um, compromised any, any longer. But that we're now in the third week in March. That, and that's the first time I'm starting to feel like that. Right. This is 13 months from the beginning. So how about the explosion, right? So your, your stride is back, you know, your, your fitness level, you, like you said, you have a seven eighteen pace for almost two and a half hours, which is, it's, which is a, a, a freaking great long run, right? Cause you just ran, you know, seven minute pace at that Boston. So this isn't too far from marathon effort for you. Um, how about just explosion and top end speed as you were coming back from, from all of this work? You know, that really wasn't where I was struggling. My midweek workouts, my, my faster work was really quite good. Um, but that, that run was less than four weeks out and three weeks out, um, we made the decision that I was, uh, that I was going to toe the line at Boston if that momentum, um, continued. And that Sunday I had my best long run. So a week later, I had my best long run that I had ever had. Whoa. Ever. So go figure. I, I can't give you an explanation. No, you're going to, you're going to have to try Heather. Because gonna, <laughs> you're going to have to try because here you are, you've worked a, for a year to get back just, you know, to, to get everything ironed out, never mind like reaching new heights, right? All of a sudden, like you mentioned, you're you're reaching new heights, which which is an incredible, must have been an incredible feeling to hit. Looking back, do you think this may have just been a culmination of all of this strength work and prehab, rehab, and just like I guess activating and working on muscles that for a long time you weren't forced to, you know, utilize off the run um, the way you had been over the previous year? Yes, 100, you know, 100%. I mean, it was the work that was being done on my body, the hands-on, um, the, the, you know, the needling, the ART, and then all the activation and strength work that, that I was doing. And um, I think the time that we spent in some of the shorter, more powerful stuff helped sort of bring it back Um let more so than, than even the longer stuff. So, you know, that week I did some eight hundreds that were sort of close to where I used to do eight hundreds. I was running them to 56 to 302 or something like that, which wasn't where I had, where I'd been before, but 
it was as close as I had been. And then that weekend, um, I ran a, you know, I ran a three by three where I progressed from 646 to 636 to 635 in those three segments. Um, and, um, and ran, you know, 17, 18 miles, um, that day. And, um, and then I ran a nine by four the following week that was even stronger. Um, now I'm two weeks out and I I just had so much gratitude. I can't even put it into words. All I wanted to do was run and run fast all day, every day. I wanted to forest Gump, but he doesn't run fast. I wanted to run fast, but I wanted to run all day all across the country, wherever anybody would let me run. Yeah, you'd been you'd been held back. All of a sudden, you were out of the cage. Yeah. You're like a dog, right? Yeah. Someone, someone leaves the front door open, and the dog gets loose. And see you later. I told James he was going to have to put a leash on me at, <laughs> at the start. <laughs> All right, you're you're a coach, right? Yeah. You you coach a ton of athletes. You coach 24 runners at Boston. I mean, that yeah. is that is an enormous amount of people. And kudos to you and the athletes you work with to to, to have that number be so high. It's, it's absolutely incredible. So you, and you have your own experiences. So what was it like trying to figure out what the plan was, what the race strategy was for Boston? Obviously, James is, a, is an experienced coach. He knows you well. He knows the course well. You know the course well. You know yourself well. But what did you what did you guys end coming up with in terms of what you were capable of and what you're going to go for on that day? I was I was in the mindset that if I could run my course PR, which was a 310.15, um, that it would be a remarkable day given the year and a half that I had had at this point. Um, so James, and this is, I'm going to, Matt, I'm going back like three weeks, four weeks out um, when we made the decision that I would go. And he said, nah, you're 305. And I didn't see that really. Um, and then I started to work on my race plans for my athletes early because I knew I was going to be getting to Boston in the week. I had to focus on myself as an athlete. So I usually don't write race plans until I have visibility to weather and I have those last few workouts in and so forth. Um, but I wrote them early and I communicated with my athletes were really the only ones who knew besides my family and my team that I was going to go to Boston. I was very quiet. Um, and so in writing those plans, I got excited. I had this propulsion going on within myself. So I wrote my own race plan. Um, and I sat down, um, and I wrote it and I came up at 304 and I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, we hadn't rediscussed and James said, send me your race plan. And I said, no, I'd like to see yours. Um, and, um, so he sat down the next day and wrote mine and he was cute. He said he'd looked at it a thousand ways. I doubt that, but, uh, just knowing James, but, um, he wrote to 302. He said he didn't see 305 based on my work anymore. So, um, we, we, we didn't really talk about it until we saw each other in, in Boston, um, and I'm still sitting on a lot of gratitude. Um, and that's basically what my mantra, that's what I was going to run with. Um, I do know the course. I respect the course. I was a little scared of the momentum that was going on. And that was my concern when I talked to him. 
that I was that I was going to actually make a rookie mistake and be stupid because I just wanted to run fast. I was running easy runs too fast. I was I did a shakeout on Saturday in Boston. I ran too fast. Um and it was just it was just happening naturally. Um so um he didn't feel that I was going to make that mistake. Um and um he actually gave me, you know, something in addition to the gratitude that Saturday before Monday. Um he gave me hope. And um and he believed that I was going to win. I didn't really see that. I don't, I don't, that's not, that wasn't what was driving me. I was just so happy to run and to be there. I love that race. I love that course. I feel like it's my home course. My daughters all went to school in Boston. I've, I've run it since 2011. And all of a sudden I hadn't run it in three years. And I just wanted to be there and to run and to soak up everything that was Boston. I just, I love that race. So tell me how in the first, especially the first 5K, but ultimately the first 14 miles or so, really before, you know, the Newton Hills and things start to really get hairy for most people, how you were able to manage your energy level to, to set yourself up for success later on in the race? Um, I felt acutely calm and confident um, in my corral. Um, and I came across, um, the start at 10.04 by the time my, my corral came through. Um, it's pretty crowded and tangent wise, it's just smart to sort of stay center and go and with the crowd, not get into trying to weave and on the sides and so forth. Uh, it's actually a little dangerous. Um, so I just, a couple times I did look at my watch in those first two to three miles and I was a tad fast, but not really. Um, and I did, I just felt calm and I felt strong and I felt like there was nowhere else I was meant to be on that day than right there. Um, and, um, you know, my, my family was in Boston, um, and I just needed to get there. Um, and, um, I, I ran with focus to some degree. I think my only regret is I, I, I feel like I missed the experience a little bit. Um, I didn't really make a lot of eye contact. I just, I was, I was racing myself. Um, I knew I was running strong. I felt good. I felt good into the hills. Um, I felt the wind coming up, you know, over 95 mile 17 there. Um, but you always feel the wind there. I wasn't terribly concerned about it. Um, I was still feeling very, very good. I was carrying a handheld. I wasn't dealing with water. I was getting my nutrition in. Um, that's a whole nother story that I've been working on for years that I feel came together really well this time. Um, and, um, I came over, I came over the first hill and I felt good. I came, um, up over firehouse. I felt good. I was, the goal was to push the downs. I was able to do that, but I was now really sort of acutely feeling the wind. And I thought that was interesting in the undulation of that particular part of the course that I was feeling the wind. Um, so the wind, we saw the wind was picking up, but I think it was, uh, you know, clearly also some fatigue setting in. 
Um, my but my body felt good. I felt strong. I came over Boston College where my one of my daughters went, and I, you know, I make the turn on Firehouse, and I say three and a half miles to Bug, who's my daughter who went to BC, and then I, you know, have three miles to um, to Timber and Kayla who went to BU and MIT. Um, and I still feel that way. And I just, I, I sort of run those miles like I'm just running to them. And, um, 22 you, is a precipitous drop. Um, and it's, they call it the hollow mile. And, um, I was able to push back down. That was the goal. And, um, but the wind and I made the left on beacon and, you know, two of those, you know, four to five miles, I was able to get back under, you know, um, I was able to get back into the six fifties, but largely I felt as I started to do that, the wind and I felt my effort escalate to threshold where I knew I didn't want to be, and I didn't want to blow up. And I knew I was having a great day and I didn't want to be a casualty on beacons. So I just, you know, talked to myself and said, stay smart, stay steady. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, get yourself to Commonwealth. <laughs> so did you, were you running consciously aware of what your splits in time were? Were you running by feel and how, and at what point, if at any point, did you start to really dial into, this is the time I need to break the record? I was very aware of where I was really the whole way, but I would tell you that I was running on fee. I, I didn't, I didn't care. Okay. So you were aware of the clock, but you weren't running I by aware, the clock. I was very aware of the clock, but the clock wasn't, I was so calm and confident. The clock wasn't, I, you know, I, I saw 720 on, you know, coming over heartbreak. It, it just didn't where in the past it might, it just didn't affect me at all. I just was very calm. I just. Oh, that's I nice. So it was like, there was like no judgment. It's like you just you're aware of it, but not judging, just yeah. letting it fly, yeah. letting it fly. Um, and I knew I was having a good day, and I think that's why I made that decision on Beacon. You know, if there's a regret, it's that I didn't sort of step a little bit closer to that edge on Beacon. I think I could have. I was, you know, I typically will heave at the. I, I didn't heave. I didn't do anything. So I, I know I left something out there. Um, which is good. Makes you hungry. Makes you want more. But um. I, I knew to answer your question that I was running into a sub 304. I, I knew that. And I knew what that record was. Um, and I just wanted to be smart at that point. All right. So you so you, so you go through the iconic turns, right? The, yep. the right and the left. And here you are, you're, you're going to be eyeing down the finish line, the, the end of a race that you know so well. At any point, did you were you able to just stop clock watching down the end, and you knew you had it in the bag, or were you like even coming down the stretch? Were you you know look, looking at the watch the whole time? No, I at, at that point when I my family's on the on Commonwealth by Hereford, and when I saw them, I threw them my handheld, um, yelled, "I don't do this without you!" And I fired, and I didn't I didn't look, I didn't look, I didn't know what had happened really until. I saw James. That is that is incredible. What what a great story! And I love talking to you all the time. You're just such a inspiring person and someone who's just your approach. It's just it's absolutely fantastic. Now, one thing that we talked about before we started recording was just the idea that a lot of people, when they look at runners like you, right, runners who in their 60s who are reaching at levels that they've never reached before. You mentioned before within a month of this race, you had the best long run you'd ever had 
And that, what, an, what an incredible thing to say. So a lot of people are aware of, say, professional athletes and their peak years, right? So not like a peak moment, but kind of like the, the top level plateau of their careers in, in pro sports that is, it's easy to see. There's historical data that supports it. And oftentimes they transpose that information onto their own athletic journey. And yet I feel like that's, that's such a fallacy because very few of us ever reach our own personal peak ranges in those years. So it, it really becomes this disjointed comparison game when you're talking to athletes that you work with, or you're just talking to people who are inquisitive about your own performance, how do you talk about improvement, reaching new goals, new heights, and how that may or may not be associated with the aging process? Oof. <laughs> the aging process is a hard one for, um, for most of us, not just me. Um, I don't think about that that much. Um, I I choose not to look at peak because it suggests that there's, uh, uh, you know, um, the uh, it suggests that the the down is on the other side. Um, I like to use the word prime. Um, and um, I like to think about what I need to do to maintain that kind of fitness and that kind of focus. Um, to extend that. And that's, that's what motivates me every single day. Uh, you know, I believe my best is in front of me. I know my best is in front of me. Um, age is a number is sort of a, you know, coined phrase. Um, but I don't feel my age. Um, I don't act my age. I don't think I look my age maybe in buns. Um, but, um, I just, um, I really believe that it, we're a product of what our choices and our intention is. And, um, that's hard because life gets in the way. Um, and we have families and we have, you know, jobs and we have, responsibilities of, of, of all kinds. Um, and at the end of the day, um, for most people running is a hobby. Um, but I do believe we can do, we can find greatness within ourselves. I'm really curious what that is within myself. Um, I believe that we can, that we can do better as athletes as human beings. And I believe that that should be a purpose for all of us. Um, and, um, I just, I, I, I think that's sort of what grounds me. And so when I was injured, it, it, you know, I was able to shift it. Um, and, um, I'm, I'm really excited that I can be an athlete again. Um, in addition to, you know, a mother and a wife and a coach and a cheerleader. Um, but, um, I just, I, I think we make choices and, um, my choice is to try and find out what I can do. And let's talk about mindset, right? You had 14 months there where like you went from, I want to set, I think I can set the record in my age group at Boston, which is a, an enormous thing to think and to say. 
And then you go through a 14, 15 months of like, basically your body saying, not so fast, my friend. <laughs> we got <laughs> got some other stuff here. Um, talk about the mindset that you used to get through that period, not simply to like, you know, get back to running again, but to set yourself up for the success that happened at Boston this year and maybe even the stumbles that, that happened along the way. Because oftentimes when people are injured, especially a prolonged injury, especially injuries that don't have a timeline attached to them, the the mental and emotional drag that that can create can just make people say, that's it. I'm just I just don't want to deal with this anymore. And if I disconnect, maybe I just won't have this hurt, this this mental anguish associated with this anymore. I think we have a tendency to focus on what we can't do and we need to focus more on what we can do. Um, I mean, it's natural, you know, fight or flight, you know, it's natural to go that way. Um, and, and I think in all honesty, we all do that. That's the first place we go. Um, the question is whether mentally you can turn that conversation around and shift and shift it. Um, and find gratitude and grace in what you can do. Find joy um, in what you can do. Um, and just start to build on that um, day by day, hour by hour, week by week. Um, and um, I was constantly picking apart the little, the little wins. I embraced my inner mermaid. Um, when I could swim a mile, you know, when I could swim for X amount of time, um, you know, when, um, when I could get back out on the bike and be out alongside, um, my, my runners. Um, and, um, I just, you know, I sort of just embraced all of those little moments along the way. And even in the, even in what was failing so dramatically, I, I would just remind myself you're running. Um, your foot doesn't hurt, <laughs> even if your hip feels like it's gonna disengage. Um, but, um, you know, I just, so I stayed focused on, you know, on, on, on my foot feeling good, uh, just on what was right versus what was wrong. All right. Now that you obviously are back to the, the your full powers, obviously, because you just ran an incredible race, right? I'm assuming that you were able to walk after the race, let's hope. Uh, but you know, you're you are pushing to the finish line. So you're at the peak of your powers, really doing incredible stuff. What are you going to take from the previous 12 months, just from a, from maybe like the strength perspective, the prehab, the rehab, all that stuff, everything that you incorporated that helped you get to this point that maybe even if you're not injured, that you want to make sure you're still incorporating into your daily and weekly routine? Well, I'm going to take all of it, Matt. Um, you know, pre-activation takes, it takes me five to eight minutes. Let's, let's dive into exactly what that is, because you and I both know what that means. But a lot of people, they hear that and they, they know it's jargon, but they don't know exactly what that is. Okay, so before I leave my house, and I will warm up and do dynamics in a run. So before I even leave the house, I do band walks. Um, I do um, bird dogs. I do dead bugs, variations of this. I do ankle mobility. Um, I do some swings and some kicks, um, etc. I have a routine of about 12 movements um, you know, in that vein that I do. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I do before I leave my house. 
Um, I preload. Um, I got very, very serious about nutrition and, 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 and hydration and fueling. Um, I preload every run. I don't go out and run without, without calories in food. I preload with you can, um, it works really well for me. Um, and, um, I do that for any run that's, I'm going to be over 60 minutes, which is every run. So I, so I do that every day. Um, and I would, you know, two scoops if I'm going out for a longer quality session kind of thing. Um, I walk into my house now. I I do dynamics before I start a workout. I don't ever start a workout without doing dynamics. If I go out with a group of people, Matt, nine times out of 10, the group of people will stand next to me and talk to each other while I'm doing dynamics. It's the damnedest thing. You're, you're, you're the best runner there. And they're not like, they're not picking up on what you're putting down. No, no, no. They're coffee clutching. Um, so, um, or they're doing half of what, you know, they'll do a couple and then they stop and start to talk. Um, I come into my house now. I used to go straight to the bathroom and go upstairs and change. I go straight to the blender and I make my protein and energy chocolate. You can't shake. So I, that's in me within 30 minutes. Um, you know, helping me, you know, restore. Um, so very intentional hydration um, where I have, you know, I get it right two or three days a week. It really is work to do that every single day. Um, and I carb loaded this time if 400 grams for three days. That was hard. I, I've, I've, I've carb loaded before, but not with the intention. You know, I probably got two, 250 in before. I was measuring and marking and I was, you know, I, I fell short actually on Friday. I got 375 and I was on it on Saturday and Sunday. Um, and I learned to eat a banana. I hate bananas. Um, and you know, all of those things, and I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing them because they're up. All those little pieces are a part of why I am able to run or move. Um, I don't think at my age, if I don't pay attention, I, well, I know I just, I, I, I won't, I won't be able to. So you got to kind of make the time, but it's not a lot of time. Strength training you can do in somewhere between 20 and 40 minutes, you know, two, two times a week. You, you can find the time. I, I do my static stretching in the shower. Um, I do calf raises and heel drops on the way upstairs. Right. And I think that most, most people who, don't do the strength training, they know what's important. Like they don't need to be talked into it. It's just like, all right, are you going to commit yourself to doing it? I feel like with the pre-run activation stuff, and, I, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody. I haven't been lately and it's why I haven't been injured lately. But be like, all right, like the, 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 the procrastinator in me will be like, hey, if this thing only takes three to five minutes, how useful is it really? Right? Can I, can I just skip this and just go for my, my, my easy run? Like, is it really that important? It only takes me three to five minutes, right? And it's so funny because like sometimes we mark the importance of things by these outside factors, right? Like if something costs more, it means it's better, right? If it takes longer, it must be more important or more valuable. Whereas sometimes the simple, easy thing is so integral and yet so easy to do. Yeah. Um, one, 100%, I would tell everybody, but particularly if you're, you know, 45 and older, that if you want to run, that you need to find the time to do that. 
Um, you know, and I would also say, Matt, that I, I just think people underestimate. I spent a lot of time on, in, you know, back, back, back in December and January when I really couldn't, in short, like hill repeats and strides. Um, and they're part of my routine four days a week. Um, you know, they're just part of what I do, um, for, for, you know, not just power and speed, but for running economy. And, um, it just, it, it teaches your body how to run fast, relaxed. Um, and I just think it's really those little details that, that most of us don't pay attention to. And certainly I wasn't, and I got away with for a long time. Right. And that's, and this is a point that I've made so many times on the podcast in short, because I've lived this experience as well, just like you have, is that just because you're getting away with something, this flip side of that is if you're doing it, you're improving, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the difference here. It's not like, can I get away with it or not? It's more like, Hey, am I going to improve today or not? And if you're not doing those sorts of things, it hurts your improvement. And sometimes, you know, the we just have to reframe things depending on how our own outlook is in life. And if we're if we reframe it, um, sometimes it can be easier to say, yeah, well, then I'm going to do it right. Like this is this is going to make the investment worth it. Just this extra two minutes of of, you know, of light pickups or whatever. Right? It's like it ain't it changes nothing on your run. You don't have to recover from it. And yet it can make a huge difference over time. Yeah, I think that um, I just think we lose sight into what, you know, in life, not just running. And obviously running is a metaphor for life, but um, we lose sight on those little things, those little details, those little moments with your children, whatever, you know, whatever they are that are really way more important in the bigger scheme of things on in, in, in the outcome, you know, of your, your relationship with your children or your, your, or your running, you know, um, if you just pay attention and focus, um, on what's, you know, right there and what you need to do. Um, otherwise we won't be able to, or at least I won't be able to, if I don't, um, now granted I have the time, um, and not everybody has the time. Um, and I have the resources and I have an incredible group of people supporting me, not just in my family, but in, in a team of people. But, um, but it's at the end of the day, it's my choice and my decision to allocate time to that. And, um, and it, it actually becomes kind of fun, um, because when you do step on the line or you do go for that quality session, first of all, would you ever, you know, your car, if you don't put fuel in it, isn't going to get to the end of your driveway. So why would you ever run and ask your body to do something without fueling it? Um, if you want your body to do hard things, why would you not take care of it? Not just in the pre, but in the post to enable it to do that. And I think if you sort of frame your dialogue a little bit closer to that, um, which sounds pretty, it sounds very simple. <laughs> it doesn't sound really that hard, but, um, I think if we remind ourselves of that, and that's what I've had to do this last year, you have to do this. Um, you have to take the time to do this. Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. And it's, it's useful for everybody. Ben Rosario has been on this podcast talking about how he does this with his professional runners and people are like, well, that's a pro runner. It's like, I only run for fun. Well, like, you know, what's not fun being injured. That's not fun. So if, if for no other reason, even if you're just saying, hey, I'm not even planning on racing. Well, you know what? 
This can make running even just your 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 easy miles more fun, enjoyable in the long term. Heather, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Congratulations on all your success, bouncing back from some some really you know wacky injuries here, and uh, and really making it work for you. It's just it's really awesome to see and to follow along. Thanks, Matt. It's been great. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Good luck in Eugene. Thank you. Have fun. All right, Heather, thank you so much for coming on the show. I told you in the intro that this was going to be a great story. And, you know, we all battle injuries from time to time and sometimes even more often than that. And hearing someone like Heather work so darn hard to get to the finish line or just finish line to get to the starting line, I should say, it's so inspiring because it also shows us that no matter how good and talented a runner can be, even for how long someone can be at that high level, we all struggle with this stuff. And, you know, we can learn from people like Heather who battle, who deal with that. It's a mental and emotional toll, never mind the physical one, but staying positive, control what you can control and continue to get better. And all the while being optimistic that you're going to get back to it. And that's exactly what she did. And I'm so glad that she came on the podcast to tell that story. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.